Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 11, New Testament book of John. And uh, we, if you're new with us, what we tend to do is we're, we're, we're working our way through a book of the Bible about 90% of the time. It's called expositional preaching. We kind of go through, plod through the text section by section. But of course, this is Easter, so you know we're going to take a break. We've been in Job for the last three or four months. Um, very powerful, amazing book. But today, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, before God called me to pastoral ministry, many of you know, I worked as a television sports anchor and, and a reporter for a while back in the mid to late 90s. And I worked for CNN and NBC for a while. And, and when I was a reporter, I was co- called to cover the teams from Southwest Ohio. So Cincinnati Bengals, Cincinnati Reds, Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, uh, and then for the NBA, I actually covered the Indiana Pacers, which was central Indiana was way closer than Cleveland from you know Cincinnati where uh, I was stationed. And so uh, I'd be sent to cover games by God's grace at the opportunity to watch NFL games from the field. And I get to baseball games early. And then what I would do is I was sent to interview players and then not just interview players, but tell the story. What's the story of that game? Now, maybe a story was a defensive battle or an offensive explosion, or maybe there was tension between players of the team. So I had to identify what's the story. Well, on one particular summer day in 1997, June 27th, I was sent to cover the Cincinnati Reds. The, the Cardinals were in town. The Reds were coast, uh, hosting the Cardinals. And about, about the sixth inning, I'd you know, been on the field before the game, and I was watching the game from the press box. I was trying to think, what's the story for this game? What's the story? And about six innings into it, I thought, well, the story, I think, is there's this rookie pitcher. His name is Brett Tomko. He's had six really good innings. So that's the story I'm going to tell. But in the sixth inning, everything changed. Uh, the, uh, the top of the sixth inning... The Reds were in the field, and a, a Ron Gant of the Cardinals hit a towering fly ball to left field, in the corner of left field, and the left fielder happened to be one of the greatest athletes the world has ever seen, uh, and one of the proudest men the world has ever seen, and this guy was tracking the fly ball, he was back into the corner, had his glove up to catch it, and the ball hit him right on top of the head, and bounced about 50 feet in the air. Uh, the, the left fielder's name was Deion Sanders. And so I thought to myself, well, okay, I want to talk about this, but how do I bring that up? After the game, I was going to make a beeline for his locker, but I thought, how do I bring this up? I can't very well say you had a 300-foot fly ball hit off the top of your head. How does that make you feel? So that's not going to be a good way to approach it. And I wasn't a doctor, so I couldn't really, I didn't want to do any sort of diagnosis. So I thought, how do I get to that? I realized that bad questions lead to bad results. This is why every man has been wisely cautioned, don't ever say to a woman, when is the baby due? Because if the person is not, if the woman is not expecting, that leads to a very bad result. Bad questions lead to bad results, but good questions, a question well asked, can actually penetrate the heart. It can reveal a person's fears. It can reveal what a person worships. It can reveal what a person is feeling at even any given moment. Jesus, of course, was masterful at asking good questions. God in the flesh, he asked some of the most penetrating questions that have ever been asked. Well, in the passage we're in this morning, Jesus asked one of the most important questions he ever asked, and it's a question that each one of us will have to answer. In fact, this morning, you will answer that question. Now, 
You may not do it verbally. You may not even think about it. But avoidance is still an answer. You will answer the question this morning. Now, I didn't finish the story about Deion Sanders. That's for another day. But I won't leave you hanging on the question. Here's the question that Jesus asked. Do you believe? Do you believe? There are a few different directions we can go on Easter Sunday as it relates to our time in the Word. And the past few years, what we've done is we've, we've looked at the, the very specific resurrection accounts in the Gospels. And since we've done that the last, you know, four out of the last five years, I thought what we would do this morning is look at the prequel to Jesus' resurrection account that foreshadows and looks forward to Jesus' resurrection, and that is the resurrection of Lazarus. So let me set this up for you in case this is a new story to you. Uh, Jesus has been very involved in ministry on earth. Uh, he has his disciples with, us, with him, and one of his closest friends was very ill, and it looked like that he could die at any moment. Uh, the friend of Jesus, whose name was Lazarus, had two sisters, Mary, Mary and Martha, whom Jesus also loved. They were also his friends. And when their brother got sick, these ladies, they, they, they came to Jesus. They sought him out with a sense of urgency. And when Jesus hears what's going on, he responds very strangely. John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 44. I won't read every single verse, but let me pick up beginning with verses 5 and 6. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, to me, I mentioned this is one of the strangest responses that Jesus ever has to anybody. Uh, and I say that because he's told that his friend is terribly sick. His friend that he loved is about ready to die. And when Jesus is told, he decides he's going to respond eventually. He decides he's going to go there kind of when he gets around to it. He ends up hanging around for two days before he goes to see uh, Lazarus. It would be kind of like if, if, I, if one of our kids fell down the stairs and had blood all over his head. And I said, Janine, get in here quickly. Luke is just covered in blood. And she said, well, let me finish my video game first. Now, she wouldn't do that. She told me after the first service. I had 100 people ask me if I was a gamer. Um, she's not. Uh, but that, it's just an analogy. It's an illustration. But it, it would be kind of like that. You hear some devastating news, and you're just like, well, I'm, you know, I'll respond uh, you know, at my leisure. Uh, well, there is a, re a logical reason that Jesus may have postponed his visit to Lazarus. It could have been. Uh, because just a few weeks later in Judea, it was there that the Jews tried to kill Jesus. So maybe Jesus was thinking, well, it's just not a very prudent thing to go where I've been sought after and uh, people have tried to kill me. But it wasn't fear. It was not fear that kept Jesus from going to see his dying friend. Something deeper was going on. Look at verses 7 and following. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, 
but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, verse 15 is very interesting. Jesus says that he waited for Lazarus to die, quote, so that you may believe. But who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. Now, these are the people who had left family and home and everything else to be with him. So, you know, surely they already believed. Why would he say he's doing that so that you might believe as he's talking to the disciples? Shouldn't they already believe? Notice Thomas' response in verse 16. When Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to Judea and see Lazarus, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, it raises a question, doesn't it? What did he mean by that? In other words, was he being courageous or was he being snarky? Was he being sarcastic? When you think about <clears throat> trying to diagnose the health of a church, which you know, maybe you don't think about and that's okay, uh, but when you think about how healthy is a church, there are several markers you might consider immediately. For example, you know, are there children there? Are there a lot of young children? Is the next generation being discipled? And yes, that's a clear marker. But one of the things that we seldom think of but is equally uh, important, and that is, are leaders being developed? Is there a constant pipeline of leaders being developed and raised up? And one of the things I'm really thankful for at Capshaw is we have ongoing leaders who are being developed. In fact, we have elders, and we have elders in training. So uh, on Mondays, uh, uh, once a month at my house, we have, we have what's called the elders in training. They, they come over, and we've been involved in this training. Well, last Monday, one of the elders in training got to my house a little bit earlier than the rest, about 10 minutes early. And as he was coming in, he happened to see the doormat uh, that my wife had purchased. I'll show you a picture of it. Um, and he said to me, when he came in, he said, I don't know how to read that. In other words, is it, oh, hello, like as in surprise, like what are you doing here? Or is it, oh, hello, like I'm really not glad to see you? Or is it, oh, hello, like you're sort of excited. He said, I don't really know how to read that. Well, what Thomas says is kind of like that. It's kind of like that. We don't really know how to read it on the surface. It's kind of hard to interpret, but it's probably not some gesture of boldness. Thomas was a defeatist. Thomas was a naysayer. Thomas was that guy, you know, who always has a negative spin on things. There was a reason that he was called a doubter. There's a reason he was chastised for his doubting ways. One theologian says this, it is a gloomy saying and not one marked by an abundance of faith. Nevertheless, Jesus does not rebuke Thomas, but gives us a glimpse into why he delayed going to see Jesus, so that you may believe. That's why Jesus waited until Lazarus died to intervene, so that those, so his own disciples would believe that he was the Son of God. Now, here's why. This is our first point. Faith in Jesus is not static, i.e. something that happened in our past, but a dynamic and growing trust in the person and work of Jesus, the work of Christ. The disciples, they've already pledged their loyalty to Jesus. They've already said, where you go, we will go. In fact, some had already said to him, I'm going to die with you if that's what it takes. 
So they had already professed faith in Christ, but Jesus knows that genuine faith is vibrant, it is active, it is developing. Yes, it has its ups and downs. And sometimes it's hit with doubt. But it's never stationary or complete. It is always becoming. I have four kids, ages 17 to 25. Some of you know some of them. Some of you know all of them. Um, all four have made professions of faith and been baptized. All four would call themselves Christians. And from what I can tell, uh, they really are resting in Christ and His finished work. They truly have repented and trusted in Jesus. One even serves in pastoral ministry. But even so, I pray for them every day. I pray that God would give them a faith that is real, that is vibrant, that is growing, that, that He sustains through the ups and downs of young adulthood and beyond. The German uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who, who loved to make overstatements, and he loved to th say things that were just sort of, you might even say, unnecessarily provocative. Uh, well, one time he said, he was in an argument with one of his friends, he said, he who is a Christian is no Christian at all. You say, well, what in the world did Luther mean by that? Well, what he meant was believing in Jesus is not something you say, oh, yeah, no, I did that. I did that when I was 11. I did that when I was 5. I did that when I was a young man, when I was a young woman. No, it's not something you can say, I did that. Every true Christian is believing and believing and believing again. Now, sure, there is a point where, we call it the new birth, regeneration, where God makes alive someone in Christ, a single point in a person's life, uh, where they're made alive. But that faith needs to be nurtured. That faith has to be sustained. Just saying, I wrote something in my Bible, or I walked forward on a certain day, that may not be saving faith. And maybe that's your story. Maybe you made a profession when you were a kid. Maybe years ago, you were even baptized, but you're not really centering your life around Jesus. Jesus is not your Savior, and He's not your Lord. You're not really trusting in Christ alone. You never really were. You live life the way you want to live it. You're not, again, you've not surrendered in faith to Jesus. Well, God has you here for a purpose. He's calling you to believe. He's calling you to believe. Now look at verses 17 and following. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead or been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Martha was a Jew living in first century Palestine, and as a God-fearing Jew, Martha believed in the resurrection from the dead, that it would happen one day. Uh, this kind of went without saying. It was a standard conviction, pretty much, among first century uh, Jews. But Jesus is not talking about resurrection on the last day. Jesus is not talking about resurrection someday. 
Jesus is talking about the here and now. He's talking about this very moment. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, this has a double meaning. The resurrection and and life are two complementary things. One is a reference to what happens to all those who believe they will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, even though they die physically, they will live with him forever. But there's another dimension to this. The benefits to believing in Jesus are not purely future. The one who believes in Jesus will enjoy this resurrection life on this side of death as well. Full acceptance by God. Reconciled to God. Empowered by God for God-glorifying obedience. Here's our second point. The salvation that Jesus offers is not a life improvement plan, but a life replacement plan. This is the God who throughout the Bible says over and over, I am making all things new. Not I'm in the repair business. I am making all things new. As much as it irks me to say this, uh, and I'll confess before the Lord if I'm sinning on it, but I've got the oldest phone in my family, and that really bothers me. Uh, my wife and my kids, they have the new iPhone, iPhone 14, and you know I've got it, it's not that old, but I have an older phone, and they let me know it. Uh, if we're searching for something together, they say, hey, Dad, what's up with your phone? Why is your phone, what's it doing? Is it still buffering? What's wrong with your phone? So they hold it against me. Um, well, we went into Verizon. The way they got a new phone was not, uh, the people at Verizon didn't take it back, clean it up, put a new memory card in it, you know, wipe it. No, they didn't do it. We got a replacement. We got a brand new phone. This is what Jesus does with our lives. doesn't mean God gives us a new face or a new personality or a new spouse or a new cover, uh, but he gives us a new heart, which is the source of life, the Bible says. So what God does is he takes a heart, of, a heart that's made of stone that cannot worship him, cannot receive him, cannot please him, cannot obey him. And God actually does a, the transplanting work of removing that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, a heart that's spiritually alive, a heart that desires God's glory. The Bible makes it clear every single person is born spiritually dead, spiritually dead. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 about all humanity, we were by nature children of wrath. That word, phrase by nature just means by birth. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, all of creation was tainted, infected and affected by sin. Now, we know it affects our bodies. It affected our earth. It affects our relationship. That is to say the sin of Adam and Eve. But the worst consequence of all was by far Every single person would be born infected with the sin curse, separated from and alienated from the God who made them. No one, you heard people say, I've heard people say this over the years, I was born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. No one is born a friend of God. We're actually born at odds with God. Now, longing for a relationship with God, to be sure, but It's a relationship that we're estranged from because of our own rebellion and the sin of our first parents. And this is why, by the way, we spend so much of our lives trying to make something of ourselves, trying to prove that we're worth something, trying to prove that we can be successful, trying to prove that we're deserving of love and respect. We think if we could just clean up this one area of our lives, 
if I can just get better, if I can just stop doing that one thing, God will receive me. But we're never actually able to stop doing that one thing. Never able to clean up our lives sufficiently. Never able to completely stop doing wrong. It's three steps forward and two steps back, or maybe two steps forward and one step back. Despite our best efforts, we can never get rid of our sin. We can never earn our way to God. Well, Jesus wants, to, wants us to know He didn't come to help us be better people. He didn't come to help us become friendlier neighbors. He didn't come to help us clean up our lives. He came to give us new life, new life. Jesus, after all, doesn't say, I am the self-improvement guru, follow me. He never says that. He doesn't say, I am the ultimate life coach. doesn't say that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in that statement, not only is he declaring his deity, which he is, but he's announcing that real life, life with meaning, life with purpose, life with a future that is hopeful can only be found in him. Now, maybe you're saying, Look, I was dragged here by a friend. I don't want a new life. I'm fine with my life. For most people, at least on the surface, you know, life seems to be going pretty well. I mean, for most people. Uh, but when we dig a little deeper and start looking at, at the heart level, we see what separation from God really looks like. We notice something. We're all desperate for peace. And even though many would not admit it, we all want to be restored to the God who made us. You've heard the saying, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. It's true. Things are rarely what they seem to be on the surface. Behind every perfect Instagram post of a seemingly perfect family is an imperfect family with imperfect relationships. And we can't judge because we know how we do it. I took a family picture right next to the photo wall in between services. Posted on Facebook, everybody looks, everybody looks happy and fine, but I know my life's not perfect. I know I have struggles. I know I have sin tendencies. I know that I blow it all the time. We know that our lives aren't perfect. Our relationships have issues. A posture of supreme confidence often disguises feelings of inadequacy or self-loathing. Smiles on the outside often cover hearts that are hurting and alone. Couples that seem to be just doing so amazingly well, and they're so affectionate in public, and everything on the surface seems to be going great, they often hide the fact that they fight and war when they're alone. And for those who've never run to Jesus and been reconciled to God, there's the overwhelming pressure to stave off guilt, to rid ourselves of shame, to manage our own lives. And to, just as I mentioned, prove that we're worth it. Maybe you're the one who says, I don't need the life that Jesus offers. I've got this under control. But do you? Do you really? Do you struggle with guilt? Do you have a hard time admitting you're wrong? Do you ever wonder what God really thinks of you? How does God really feel about you? Are you terrified at the thought of dying? meeting God? Do you get angry when you feel disrespected? You know, there's just certain buttons. You, ju you just can't control your anger. Are you still holding on to bitterness from a hurt you experienced maybe years ago? A number of years ago, I was ministering to a woman who's in her mid-90s. She was on her deathbed. 
She didn't go to our church, but her, but her kids asked me. They said, will you please go see our mom? Uh, she's dying, and she's not a Christian. And so I went there, and she was, she was in the hospital. She was dying. She was lucid. She was conversant. We had, we had some good conversations. And I said to her, which I thought was a fair question for somebody who's 95, I said, are you ready to meet God? She said, yeah, I'm ready. I said, how so? She said, well, she said, I've, I've done as much as I can to be as good to as many people. I've taken in foster kids. I've helped people around me. I've been an ideal neighbor. She said, I feel like I've been a really, really good person. And I said, well, the Bible says that God actually requires perfection, not just being good. And then she said something that no one else has ever said to me in 22 years of pastoral ministry. I said to her, I said, do you believe that you've been perfectly sinless? And she said, I do. I was stunned by that because I'd never had that before. never had anybody actually say that before. But as we began to talk more, I found out that some uh, 40 plus years earlier, when she was in her 50s, her husband was unfaithful. He cheated on her. He, was, he violated the covenant of their marriage. And for almost five decades, she had held on to bitterness and hatred. She had so much hatred in her heart. And as we began to talk, she began to realize by the Holy Spirit's prompting, I've been, I've been harboring this hatred for decades. I shared the gospel with her. She realized she was a sinner, repented of her sins, put her faith in Christ. And then she had a confidence and a hope for all eternity that she didn't have before that. But she, for a moment, believed that she had never sinned against God. But the more that she thought about it, she realized, yeah, I've been, I thought that I was good. But man, I've had this deep-seated hatred. Jesus came to free us from guilt, to rid us of shame, to provide forgiveness. Jesus came to give us real peace. Not, not necessarily financial prosperity, career success, or even relational harmony all the time. Jesus came to give us peace with God. That's the kind of life Jesus came to give. But it seems hard to believe. How could anybody do this? How could anybody offer this? This is why Jesus asked Mary, do you believe? Do you believe this? Not just that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead, but that Jesus was really the resurrection and the life, that peace and joy and a right relationship with the Father can only be found through Christ alone. Now, look at what happens next, verses 28 and following. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb it was a cave, and a stone lay against us. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, a few of you 
I know really like the King James translation, and, and I'm fine with it. It's got, it's got a beautiful cadence and so on, but, but there's much, you know, well, let me say this. It's a good translation. Uh, but here, it really gets the best rendering of all. Verse 39, and in the King James, and Martha said, Lord, he's been dead four days. By this time, he stinketh. That's, that's one way to say it, right? I mean, he's been in there. She's worried. What's he going to be like when he comes out of the grave? He's been in there. His body's presumably been rotting. What is this going to look like? Well, look at verses 40 and 44. Then Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the, away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of those people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, what's fascinating about this, well, among other things, three times we're told about the emotional anguish that Jesus felt. He was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled, and he wept. Now, Jesus loved this family. He loved this family. And certainly, he was grieved over the loss of his friend. But something else had to have been going on because Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why would he be weeping knowing that in just a few moments, he would see his friend again? The reality is Jesus was hurting and angry. Yes, he was angry. The Greek word used to describe his pain makes this unmistakable. Jesus weeps because he is angry at death itself and the devastation that sin brings. When he thinks about the pain in the world brought on by sin, Jesus cries. He really does. He wasn't feigning an emotional response. He wasn't trying to work himself up into a lather. Jesus cried real tears. Last couple of weeks, we've seen all kinds of things going on in our country. We've seen, and even around us, we've seen tornadoes that have swept through the southeast. We've seen the, the, the horrific killing of students and teachers in Nashville. We've seen our own police here in Huntsville assaulted and shot. This is the world we live in. This is the world tainted by sin. And when Jesus saw it, now he didn't, it wasn't like he didn't know about it, but when it was thrust in his face in such a poignant moment, Jesus wept. One Bible scholar says, the public chaos surrounding him, the loud wailing and crying, and the scene at the cemetery together produce outrage in the Son of God as he works to reverse such damages. The world is messed up. You don't have to look too far to see it, do you? In fact, we can see it by looking at our own hearts. We're selfish and greedy. We want so badly to be in control. Even those who seem to be at peace are hurting inside. But God is neither surprised nor helpless. He is at work taking back the world that He made, a world that's held hostage by sin. Here's our final point this morning. In a hurting and broken world, the resurrection of Lazarus is God's announcement. I have the power to heal and to save. God is not finished 
with the world he made. Where sin has proved strong, God is stronger still. Where sin and death seem to have the last word, God shows his power by raising Lazarus from the dead and shortly thereafter by raising Jesus from the dead. All of this signaling the forward movement of God's redemptive work. No one has ever displayed this kind of power. There's no other prophet or teacher of any other religion who can who could do such a thing. All of the other prophets and all of the other teachers of every other religion lie dead in the grave where they were buried. But not so with Jesus. No one has ever displayed this remarkable power. Some commentators suggest that given the greatness of the power and authority of Jesus, had Jesus not specified the name Lazarus when he said, come out, that every grave in Judea would have given up their dead. Can you imagine the original walking dead, zombies everywhere? But Jesus was specific about what he said. Because going all the way back to verse 14, his purpose was specific, to showcase God's salvation and power so that those who saw it would believe. This is a picture. The resurrection of Lazarus is a picture of God's salvation. It's an illustration of what God does. He brings life to those who are dead. Just as Lazarus was completely powerless to bring himself out of the tomb, so too are we powerless to save ourselves. Despite our very best efforts, we cannot save ourselves, and we certainly cannot make ourselves alive. New life must come from God alone. As I said a minute ago, we are born dead in sin, and we cannot gain spiritual life by anything we do. We have the same ability to make ourselves spiritually alive as Lazarus did to come out of the tomb in his own power. We have no ability at all. But God. But God. God is a God who brings life to the dead. God is a God who saves those who are lost, who rescues and redeems sinners. But how would he do it? How would a holy God do it? How would he save sinners? Well, in order to gain life for us, Jesus had to surrender his own life. If you've ever been in a church service, you grew up in a church, been around the church for a while, you know and you've heard Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that is totally true. That is 100% true. We're born dead in sin, under the wrath of God, condemned by God, destined for eternal condemnation, but God sent His Son to die for our sins. The worst sins we've committed and the ones that we have a tendency just to shrug off. Even the, everyone, though, leaves us guilty before God. So yes, Christ died for our sins. But more was required than just Jesus' death. He had to be raised again. Had Jesus just died, remained in the grave, and not been raised again, death would still lord itself over us, and our sins would remain unaddressed. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, had Jesus died and not been raised again, we would still be in our sins. But God sent His Son not only to die for us, but on the third day, according to the Scriptures, God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection means that we're not in our sins 
anymore. That our greatest offenses have been covered by Jesus. Forgiveness is ours. God's love for us is secure. Right now, it means that God loves us and He likes us and He delights in us and He will never hold anything over your head again. But that's not true of everyone. It's not true for everyone. Not everyone experiences the benefits of Jesus' resurrection. Only those who believe. God has done it all. Jesus paid it all, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to respond in faith. Even though God's done everything, we must receive by faith the benefits of His salvation. So consider, think about it this way. God has set the table. The meal is there. The banquet is set. But we must eat. We must eat. And there's a tension there. There's a theological tension there. I get it. God does it all. We must come to the end of ourselves and receive by faith the benefit of God's salvation, which only happens when God actually enables us to do so. So I ask you the question that Jesus asked Mary in John eleven twenty six: Do you believe? Not just do you accept the existence of Jesus, not just do you recognize that Jesus was a real person who walked the earth and had great teaching. Not even that just that he was dead and made alive. But do you believe that he died a death that you deserved and was raised again for your salvation? Would your life give evidence that you are trusting only in the person and work of Jesus, God's Son, if you, if you haven't believed, what will it take for you to get there? The fact that we and tens of millions of, of others around the world are worshiping someone who graced the earth 2,000 years ago is pretty amazing, isn't it? It's one of the most compelling evidences that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. If, the church, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no church. That we can be sure of. Remember what happened to the disciples when, when Jesus was crucified. They scattered. They deserted him. They left him for dead. And this ordinary group of men had no reason to go around telling others about Jesus if he remained in the grave. They certainly wouldn't have given up their own lives for Jesus if he himself remained in the grave. Jesus would have been forever forgotten if not for the resurrection. There'd be no Christianity, that's for sure. You and I wouldn't be here this morning. In fact, given all the incredible claims that Jesus made when he was on earth, if he did in fact remain in the grave, he would have been exposed as a complete fraud because he claimed to be God. And God can't be held in check by a grave. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. And if he didn't, nobody would ever have followed him. But he was raised from the dead. It is, again, the real historical fact, event, upon which all of human history turns. He was raised from the dead as evidence that his death in our place was sufficient. So I ask you this morning, do you believe? And if not, will you believe? and receive 
the salvation that comes in Christ alone. Let's pray.